Our next reading is from Hebrews. It's on page 1175. It's from Hebrews chapter 9, and we're reading verses 11 to 28. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law required that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Last week I was uh, driving one of my children to uh, one of their events and I put on some music just as we were driving along in the car. Music from all the way back in the olden days of the 1980s through to about the year 2000. <laughs> more than a lifetime ago for my kids. And we'd only heard about two bars when I was told, that's old, turn it off. 
And I, I think the underlying message there was, why would we want to listen to that? It's old, it's no good, it's time is over. Either that or I just have really bad taste in music, I'm, I'm not sure. I remember when I was younger, sort of wondering why spend 75%, three quarters of all of the Bible's writing on the Old Testament. It, it's old. It, it's over. We are under the new covenant now. I never actually even thought of the irony that by identifying that I'm under the new covenant, that I'm identifying it in relation to the old. It can't. There can't be a new covenant without some foundation before it. I've heard people say, well, the old covenant was just about works and the new covenant is about grace. But I don't think that's true. The old covenant was also always about God's grace. But I think what I'm hearing in that is a trace of the same thing in that comment. Well, that's kind of old. That's over. It didn't work. It wasn't any good. So let's forget about that and just concentrate on our freedom in Christ. And we do have wonderful freedom in Christ. But sadly, uh, for many, that freedom actually becomes a free-for-all to the point where they end up doing exactly the opposite of what God clearly teaches is his will for us and his created order. It's not wise to untether the new covenant from its foundation. In fact, we can't really see and understand it and, and know its beauty uh, without its context in the old. So let's, uh, let's just pray and ask God for his help to understand this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is both wonderfully complex and beautifully simple. Uh, help us to understand the richness of your plan of salvation I pray that what I say this morning is true and honouring to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the chapters leading up to this, the writer of the Hebrews has been talking about a better covenant and a better priesthood. Israel knows about covenants. It knows the importance of God's covenant to them. It knows that without God's covenant to them and the promises uh, contained therein, they would be in the same position as the Gentiles, rebels, sinners, outcasts, enemies of God without any hope except of his righteous judgment. And Israel knows about the priesthood. They specially appointed men who would intercede for them before God. Each time they kill an animal for a sacrifice, they know in their heart of hearts that animal's just a state a scapegoat. It should be their life that's being cut off because of their breaking of the covenant, because of their sin against the holy God. At least that's what they should know. They were meant to see the grace of God in that. That animal had no merit to take away sin. God wasn't pleased with them because they were working the system right. They weren't earning points with God because they were following the rules and the Gentiles weren't. But many of them had effectively come to put their faith in, in all of that, in the system, rather than the God of grace behind it. And that's actually pretty easy to understand because there's many people today who do the same thing, who have uh, 
the church experience who buy, who buy into the same idea. They look at the things, they look at the church building, they look at the fact that they're attending regularly, they sing the songs, they listen to the sermon. Well, at least they sit through the sermon and try and bear with it. Uh, they participate in the sacraments. They, they give their money in the offering. They're doing all the right stuff. But there's a problem when our faith is uh, focused on the stuff and not looking behind the reality of it, the actively trusting in the grace and mercy of God. So the writer of, of the Hebrews tells them we have a new high priest but he's totally different to any priest that ever came before. He doesn't enter the physical tabernacle, the temple building. He doesn't have actual animals to kill. He doesn't do offerings again and again like all the other priests do. So what does he do? Instead of going into a building to intercede for his people, he goes directly to the spiritual reality of what that building represents. We get a, uh, just to skip to verse 23 for a minute, we get a key word to understand all this. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. The key word there is copies. Now, since Keith's away, I think I can get away with this. I'm going to do what he does often in the sermon and say, I don't really like that word, <laughs> copies. When you think of a copy, I think of, you know, the photocopier out in the hall, you put your image on, press the button, and it comes out pretty much exactly the same. It's an identical copy, maybe just the quality is not quite as good. But the idea behind this word is a, a figure of, a, a representation, an imitation. Back in Hebrews 8, it's used along with the word shadow. These things, the temple building, the priests, the animals, the sacrifices, they aren't the thing. They are a shadowy representation of the real thing. They were never meant to be thought of as God's complete plan to deal with sin. They're just pointing to God's way of dealing with sin. In chapter 8, these things are called obsolete and outdated. They stood as a placeholder till the right time for Christ to come. How were people in the Old Testament times saved? Have you ever had someone ask you that? They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have the new covenant. So how did it work? Back in our first reading in Psalm 40, it says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. It was never truly about those things in itself, even in the old covenant. When someone asks you how people were saved in Old Testament times, the answer is actually pretty simple. They were saved in the same way we are, the same way that every child of God has ever been saved since the start with Adam and Eve, by God's grace through faith. Anyone that you're ever going to bump into in heaven, it's going it's to be great. But when you ask them, how are you saved? It's going to be the same story. Ultimately, it is by God's grace through faith. Way back in Genesis, just after our first parents uh, fell into sin and its deadly consequences, God also gives a promise 
that one day someone will come who will crush the serpent's head, who will crush sin and death. It's just a tiny spark in that verse, a tiny first glimpse of God's coming salvation. By the time we get to Abraham, the promise is being spelled out more clearly as the shadowy form starts to take place. Abraham didn't know all the details. He didn't get to live to see the Messiah, but he had the promise. God promised an inheritance to him and his children after him. He promised Abraham a land and he promised he would make him a nation and that he would be a God to him and his descendants. But we find out in a few chapters further on in Hebrews that what he was really looking forward to, what he was really trusting in, was a better land. Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And while, of course, he was given uh, those promises of a physical land and a, and a physical descendants, we're told that ultimately he was longing for a better country, a heavenly one. He was trusting in God's salvation uh, for his eternity. And there's nothing that Abraham did. It was all the grace of God from God's decree. Even the very choice of Abraham to receive these blessings and not somebody else, that was God's choice. It was, it was up to him. And we're told that Abraham believed God. He didn't know the, all the details yet, but he trusted God. And God credited that to him as righteousness. Another way to say all of that is that Abraham was justified by grace through faith. So why then did God give Moses the law, the tabernacle, the, the priesthood, the animals, the sacrifices? Well, just like Abraham with his land and descendants, they were physical things. Yes, they were a way to administer God's grace to his people at the time. But what should have been more important was the spiritual realities behind them. Everything in this life is temporary because we don't live here forever. But the spiritual realities of these things are eternal and they are the most important. So now we have Christ, the new high priest. He doesn't need to go to the old physical representation of God dwelt, where God dwelt. He entered the true eternal presence of God to intercede for his people. He didn't need the blood of animals, which was symbolic. He entered with the merit of his own blood shed willingly for his people. Verse 13, we see that those things that were sprinkled with the blood of animals were, were considered ceremonially clean, but those who are cleaned with Christ's blood are truly clean. I see something interesting in verse 15. Who does it say have their sins forgiven? Does it say that he died so, well, at least in the future, people could uh, have their sins dealt with? No, it was the sins committed under the first covenant, the old covenant. And to explain what that means, the writer talks about the idea of a will. And we understand a last will and testament uh, Kristen and I have a house. The kids know that one day that house will belong to them, but technically it's not their house yet. They live there. They get sheltered by the house. They will own the house, but they don't get the full reality of that until there's a death. 
Now, people under the old covenant had just the same problem as we do, sin. Something had to be done permanently to deal with sin. And these ceremonies of sprinkling animal blood and sacrifices again and again were never the solution. They covered over sins and God's just wrath for the time being, but they didn't solve the core problem. They had God's promises, but like a last will and testament, it was only when Jesus died and gave his life for them that the full effect came into reality in, in, in time. Uh, if you have your Bible, if you just want to uh, flick to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 from verse 22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's talking about the people under the old covenant there. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. All those years, all those animal sacrifices covered over their sin, held it aside for a while. God sort of gave them credit, as it were, for the time being, knowing that the final payment was coming. And that, that payment would be in the ultimate sacrifice of his son. And now that Christ has died and has risen from the dead in victory, the benefits of that will, of that promise, are now fully received. Jesus' death on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins opens up that inheritance that Adam and Abraham and all of those who died in the Old Testament times were looking forward to and trusting God for. And for us, it's the inheritance that all of us who look back in time to Christ's death and believe also claim those same promises. Why so much blood? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. How serious then is sin? We, we take it so lightly. Uh, I don't think it's hard in our, in our uh, fallen state to understand how holy God truly is and how grievous our sin is to a holy God. It should be our blood that is shed as punishment for our wicked hearts and our sin. But instead, our saviour, our high priest, intercedes for us and shed his own blood on our behalf. I have a, have a quick skim from verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Remember, the whole, the whole point, the whole way through is this never-ending need for more blood, more sacrifice, because as soon as you had sinned again, you would need to go and present another sacrifice. You'd have to go through the cycle all over again. And then think about our Lord Jesus Christ, his once and for all perfect sacrifice. 
that had more than enough value for every sin, for all of eternity. The freedom of, of being released from that continual cycle of now being justified and counted righteous in Christ once and for all, knowing that we belong as God's children and he will never, ever let us go. Sadly, there is a major uh, church and, and has been always that teaches that we need to represent the blood and body of Christ week after week after week. And we have to work the system again to be justified. And honestly, that, that grieves me. I'm kind of torn half the time between anger and half between sorrow. How could they presume to take the body and blood of our Lord Jesus and think you can go in the same way and present him again and again to cover your sins. It's a, it's a rejection of the clear teaching here in this passage and throughout scripture, the once and for all perfect sacrifice of Christ. And it's a turning back to the old. And I'm also sad they, they don't see it. Christ has done it all once and for all. What a, what a wonderful inheritance we now have. The full reality of that promise has always come only by God's grace alone through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone. So in closing, I'd like you to consider, if you, if you haven't before maybe, is the new covenant actually that new? It's kind of a trick question because the answer is yes and no. Was, was the old covenant just, just a failure that, uh, that didn't work? So God thought, well, better fix that up and come up with a new covenant, a new plan. No, because before the foundation of the world, God decreed to save a people from their sin. And Christ, again, before the foundation of the world, willingly agreed to take on that role to enter this world at just the right time and die on their behalf to bring the promises to fulfillment. In Jeremiah, God promises this. This is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's the same promise that God gave to Abraham. It's, it's even strikingly similar. The last two lines there, I believe, were meant to think of God's covenant with Abraham, that he would be a God to Abraham and his children. It's the same grace, the same promise, but now it's even better because instead of being burdened by God's law because of our sin, the law is now in our hearts because we're alive in Christ. So in other words, we don't have this list of laws to follow in order to try and be righteous. We're justified by grace through faith in Christ and counted as righteousness, as, as righteous. But now that we're cleansed, we want to follow God's written direction for our lives because we long to be holy like him and to please him and show our gratitude for who he is and how he's saved us. So the new covenant is new, but it's not a completely new idea. And rather than doing away with God's moral law, 
it should actually change God's law from a burden to something that we love and desire to keep in our hearts. If we try and throw out that first three quarters of our Bible, like uh, sadly uh, I see many Christians and, and churches trying to do today, and say, well, that was old and that's irrelevant and that doesn't apply to me anymore. And because of my freedom in Christ, I can just make up my own morality. We're going to end up in a very, very dangerous situation. I think the best way to think about the old and new covenant is summed up in the, in the chapter before in Hebrews 8 to verse 6. The covenant of which Christ is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. There was always only one way, but now we have the better, full and completed work of Christ on our behalf by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that since before the foundation of the world, it pleased you to choose a people for yourself that you would save from their sins and who will enter the better heavenly land for eternity with you. We thank you that uh, you did not leave us in our sin, but redeemed us by the blood of Christ, who intercedes for us as our high priest. Father, we pray that uh, we'll not abandon your moral law and its requirements for holy living because we live under the new covenant, but rather that it would motivate us and even greater desire to submit ourselves to you and to be changed by your grace, to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.